so glad to be with you, so glad to be praising God together and to be able to share with you some words from his, uh, from his word. Um, how many of you are, uh, are picky eaters? Anyone, a few? Any, anyone got kids who are picky eaters? Yeah, the struggle's real, guys, the struggle's real. My kids, I love them so much, and I think they are so awesome, but at dinner time, sometimes it is not so awesome. There are approximately four things that my kids eat uh, for dinner willingly and eagerly. It's uh, pizza, chicken pot pie, spaghetti, and sushi. And, and I told my kids I was gonna say this, and Natalie thought I should add a fifth. She said, well, I would eat butter for dinner as well. Like just, just butter, just straight up, which hasn't happened. Don't start judging the Thiessen household here, okay? That hasn't happened, but she would love that. That's like the dream one day to have butter for dinner. So anyways, what inevitably happens is that Carolyn makes something that's like really delicious and really good. And uh, the kids take one look at it and they go, I don't want it. I don't like it. Why didn't you make spaghetti? And it's just like tears streaming down the face. It's like some irreversible tragedy has struck them, which is kind of true because it's not reversible. They're going to eat it whether they like it or not, dagnabbit. So <laughs> the point is grumbling, grumbling causes issues. We all know this. It, it can uh, wreck the peace of a relationship, of a family, of a community, of a country even. In the, in the wilderness between, the, uh, between Egypt and the promised land, as the Israelites were, were walking through, their grumbling, their constant complaining, drove Moses crazy and, and angered God. It's, it's why we read Paul saying to the Philippians, do everything without grumbling. James says, don't grumble against your brother or sister or you'll be judged. And, and this is especially, I think, a tendency for us towards leaders. And so the author of Hebrews says to submit to your leaders, listen to them so that their, their work will not be a burden because if it is, that won't be of any benefit to you. But, but don't grumble, don't complain so that their, their work will be a, a joy because grumbling can, can ruin a church and its leaders as well. And I've, I've, ex I've seen this, I've experienced this. In the church I was an associate pastor at in my early to mid-20s, uh, there, were, there were a number of issues going on in the church. And, and one of the issues was that there were some members of the church who were living very publicly in, in sin and, and without any desire to, to kind of change that or, or, or turn from that. And the elders had conversations with, uh, with these members for over a year Nothing changed, and so eventually they kind of started very, very beginning processes of biblical discipline. And the people in my generation and a little bit older were outraged about this, could not believe that, that followers of Jesus who have covenanted yet together would actually be accountable to one another. And so they were very verbal about this, rose in a, an outcry against the leaders of the church. And so the leaders of the church uh, decided to have this listening meeting where uh, they would kind of sit and, and just kind of let people, like people would just say whatever they wanted to say. And it was one of the worst and most disheartening things I've ever been a part of because for two hours, people in the church just ripped their leaders to shreds. Everybody left discouraged in a bad mood. And, and not just because of that, but, but that church has continued to be in decline. And in fact, I, I don't think they've been able to find anyone who's willing to stand as an elder for, for years and years already. So, so grumbling is, is a big deal. Uh, in Acts 5 to 12, the section that we're in, I've said that the common unifying theme is that you see the church going through just about every 
every trial, everything that could possibly destroy the unity of a church happens to them. So with Ananias and Sapphira a couple of weeks ago, the temptation is to moral compromise. It's to build on faulty foundations. Last week, we looked at persecution from the outside, state-sponsored opposition. And this week, we're going to look at at grumbling and and division within the church. And we're going to see how even though this could destroy a church, in the end, the way the apostles respond to this leads to further growth and expansion in the church. So let's pray and then we'll get into it. Lord, we are here, and um, wherever we're coming from, whatever our week has been like, wherever our, our, um, our hearts have been, Lord, I trust that we are here and, and, that, and, and that we want to hear you. Maybe it's just like a little opening. Maybe there's just a tiny bit of softness in our hearts. But if it wasn't there, we, we probably wouldn't be here. So Lord, we pray that you would just take that, that, that opening, that, that softness, whatever is there, and uh, Lord, that you would that you'd plant the, the seed of your word, that, that that word would grow and that it would bear fruit. And Lord, that, that we would truly be transformed by your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts 6, verse 1. This is the situation. In those days, when the, numbers of disciples, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Notice right away that there are some really good things happening in the early church here. First of all, uh, you have this system set up where people are being cared for. We read in Acts 4 that people are selling things, selling their possessions, selling their homes even, and giving it to be distributed to the poor. That there is this, this kind of, uh, this, this sharing of the wealth. It's not communism. It's not state kind of ordered. It's, it's for, willingly, it's, it's from people's hearts. They generously give. But there is a system in place where they contribute and, and it's given to those in need. This is really good. And particularly, they are caring for their widows. Now, widows, as uh, in, in a patriarchal society where, uh, you know, if you weren't attached to a husband or a father, you were the most vulnerable in a society like that. You weren't taking in an income. And so widows are like a biblical staple in calls to compassion. Psalm 68 says that God is a, a father to the fatherless and a defender of the widows. James says that a hallmark of true Christian faith is that we care for widows and orphans in their distress. And so this is good. They're, they're caring for the widows, which is what they're supposed to do. And the church is growing, right? The number of disciples is increasing. Butts are in the seats. You know, this is what, this is what churches want to see. They want to see growth. So good things are happening. But here's the problem. There were humans in the church, and humans are imperfect. Uh, it's, it's often been said, and you've probably heard this, you might have heard this before, but if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it inevitably. Even the good things that are happening in this early church, growth and compassion and generosity, uh, there's still, anyone can find a reason to grumble about anything. Things still fall through the cracks. Things aren't done perfectly. And here's the problem here in the, in the early church. And it comes down to these two groups of people. And I know you probably hear these terms and you have no idea what they're about. So this is why we're here. I get to explain this to you. Uh, the, the early church was at this point basically made up entirely of Jewish people. 
but it wasn't monocultural because there were, uh, broadly speaking, two groups of, of Jews living in Judea. You had Hebraic Jews, and they were the ones who were born and raised in Jerusalem and in that surrounding area. Judea was kind of the Roman province where the Jews, kind of the homeland there. So, so you had Hebraic Jews who were born and raised in that area. They, uh, they spoke Aramaic as their first language, which was closely, to related, closely related to Hebrew, would have read their scriptures in that, in that language. Uh, they, they, were, they grew up with Judaism all around them, the temple and the priests and, and that whole thing. Like if, if you were a Hebraic Jew, you probably felt like you were really like an authentic uh, like, like really true, truly Jewish person, right? Because you grew up in a setting like this. Um, the, the apostles were likely all Hebraic Jews. Most of the first disciples of Jesus were Hebraic Jews. That was kind of the background. Then you had Hellenistic Jews. Hellenistic comes from a word that means Greek. So the, these are people who grew up uh, and were born and raised in other places all around the Roman Empire. The Jewish population had been dispersed kind of in all these cities like Rome and Alexandria and Antioch. They were kind of spread out in the first century. And so these were people who grew up in those places. And they were still Jewish and they, they tried to hold on to their customs, but they grew up in places where they were very much a minority and where they would have had to learn what other, how other people thought and how they spoke. They didn't speak Aramaic. They spoke Greek or whatever languages of the places they were in. They read their scriptures in, in Greek. And, and so they were... Um, yeah, they, they, were, they were kind of very different cultural background. Now, what happened is that some Hellenistic Jews moved back to Jerusalem, especially in their older years, because they wanted to retire there. They wanted to live their last days in, you know, the, the resorts and the spas of Jerusalem. I don't think there were those things, but they, were, they wanted to spend their last days in their ancestral homeland. And so they would come to, come to Jerusalem. And so because of that, a lot of the Hellenistic Jews were, were probably wealthier, because they had the means to move and to, and to immigrate. Uh, they were also more likely to have vulnerable widows in their midst because they were often older and uh, because those, those people had moved from their families, they were maybe weren't as connected to biological families. So here, here's the situation. In the early church, you've got Hebraic and Hellenistic Jews. You've got this system of generosity set up. It's probably Hellenistic Jews contributing a lot to that benevolence fund to that pot. And it's probably Hellenistic Jews who are receiving it quite a bit. The, the, the widows often are, are Hellenistic Jews. But this system, who is it run by? It's run by the, the apostles, it seems. Certainly it's run by Hebraic Jews. And the Hellenistic Jews look at this and they say, something's not right here. You're not being fair. Our widows aren't being treated right. Maybe they're, maybe they're not getting served. Maybe the, the Hebraic Jews are getting served first. Maybe they're getting a larger portion. Whatever it is, they go, this isn't fair. You're not treating us right. And they grumble. They, there's this outcry that rises against the apostles and other Hebraic Jews because of this perceived injustice. And so do you see why this is so threatening to the unity, to the fabric of the early church? It's not just that they're complaining about something. There is this whole underlying tension. There's all this like superiority and inferiority complexes going on underneath the surface. There's longstanding stuff and this issue now threatens to blow it all up and blow the church apart. Here's how the apostles respond, verses two to six. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and they said, it would not be right for us 
to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, not to be confused with the meerkat from Lion King, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Notice what the apostles don't do. They don't get defensive. They don't argue with the Hellenists. They don't go, no, what are you talking about? It's fair, it's totally fair. It's just like you always making mountains out of molehills. They don't do that. And, and they also, I thought about this, and I, I don't know how much to read into this, but they also don't necessarily agree with the Hellenistic Jews about the root of the problem. It doesn't say it exactly, but it sure seems like the Hellenistic Jews think that it's ethnic discrimination at the core of this. And those ethnic tensions are going to be a factor in the early church. We're going to read that later on when the, when the Gentiles and Samaritans get involved. But the, but the apostles don't seem to, to think that that's the real issue. What, what they see as being the issue, what, what they kind of talk about, what the text highlights, is that they have been overextended. They are operating outside of their gifting and calling by being so involved in this ministry. Now, can you relate to that? Can you relate to kind of overextending yourself? Because I, I, I know what that's like, maybe for different reasons than the apostles. Uh, when I was uh, playing basketball more competitively, I, uh, I will admit to you, I always wanted to be the superstar. I wanted to score the points. I wanted the ball in my hands at the end of the game. I wanted my, he my teammates to look at me and sing, there goes my hero, watch him as he goes. That's kind of what I wanted, right? And... <laughs> There's a little Foo Fighters for you here on a Sunday morning. <laughs> you know, is that, does that tendency carry through in, in ministry? I'm ashamed to admit that, that it does sometimes, that I, I kind of want people to look and say, wow, look what a load he's carrying. Look at how much he does. Wow. So you, you kind of overextend yourself because you want to be a hero. You want people to look at you well. Maybe you do it because you just go, well, other people just aren't as competent as me. And if they do it, I'm going to have to correct it anyway. So I'll just do it myself. Maybe you say, I'm just too lazy. I don't, I don't want to train people up. I don't want to take the time to do that. Or maybe you just think that because you are the leader, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to do everything. Whatever it is, maybe you've overextended yourself. And, and so the apostles here, this grumbling prompts this awakening, this realization. Now, don't get, you, don't get this wrong. Don't, don't think that grumbling then is a great thing because God uses it to do something good. I mean, Paul tells us that God is able to be merciful in the midst of our sin. Doesn't mean you should sin a lot more so that you experience more mercy. But God is able to take this grumbling and he's able to, to use it for good. He wakes the apostles up to the fact that they have, they have neglected what they're supposed to be doing. So we, they say in verse three, it would not be right for us, sorry, verse two, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, when they say, well, waiting on tables, that sounds like this is, this is below them, you know, like, like changing the kids' diapers or like cleaning the toilets or something. Like, ah, it's just, can't, we got more important things to do. That's not what they're saying. 
Because the same word that describes the administration of food, the distribution, the same word is, is the word uh, in the Greek, it's, it's ministry. It's the same word as, as what describes the ministry of the word. They're preaching and teaching. It's a ministry. Administration is a high and worthy calling. It's just not their calling as disciples. And if they, if, they, if they spend their energy and time doing it, then they'll neglect what their actual calling is. Can you relate to this? Can you relate to being so immersed in, in something that you're not called to that you neglect the thing that you are? Now here again, I need to, I need to clarify something because some people have this, uh, this mindset that they'll only, they're only going to do something if it's like a perfect fit, if it just totally suits their fancy. Um, back to the basketball analogy, because that's what I do, guys, just so you know. Um, in the mid-90s, my, my favorite team was the Chicago Bulls before, uh, before Jordan retired. This was uh, between retirements, between his first and second retirement. There's a third retirement too. Anyways, so he's not playing. Scottie Pippen is now the superstar. He's, he's, the, he's the main guy. They're in a playoff game and it's tied. And at the end of the game, the coach calls a play for the second best player on the team to take the shot. And Scottie Pippen is going to have an important role to play in this, in this play, but he's not taking the shot. And you know what he did? He was so upset about this that he refused to go into the game. He sat on the bench. And uh, because he wasn't, he, he figured he was the superstar. He was supposed to take the shot. See, some people kind of um, act, almost, almost act like this in the church. It's like, if I, don't get the, if I don't get to do the best thing, if I don't get to do the thing that I really think I should be doing, then I'm not going to do anything at all. See, I'm, not talk, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, I hear that the problem is the disciples know what they're gifted and called to do. It's like the coach has told them, go into the game and do this, perform this task, play in this way. And, 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 and you know, they, they, they're immersed. They're so immersed in doing something else that they're not able to do the thing the coach called them to. There's a problem when, when we know that God has called us to do something and we're so caught up in doing something else that we neglect it. See, the disciples know. They know what they're gifted and called to do, they say it in verse four, that we have to give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This is what we have to be about. And by the way, I think this is a job description for every spiritual leader in the church, for every pastor, for every elder, that this is the primary thing that you are to be about, that you are to be about teaching the word. Doesn't mean you have to be up here in front of a big group. It can be in small groups and homes. It can be in, to individuals, but that you are encouraging people to know Jesus, follow Jesus, and you are immersed in prayer. That's your job. And if, if the leaders, if the spiritual leaders of the church neglect that, then the whole thing goes astray. See, think about what would have happened if there wasn't this course correction in the early church. If the apostles had continued to, to oversee this massive social, social project, would not the church have become simply a social service, a community service? Because that, that's happened before. There's a ministry in the downtown east side that you might know. It's called uh, First United. First United was actually one of the oldest churches in the city. It began in 1885, and it was a, a church for over 100 years. Um, but as, as, you know, the downtown east side became what it is, the church, it was engaged more and more in, in, in social service and in charity. And, and I, I don't know the in-depth history, but I'm pretty confident that at some point, the leaders of that church, the spiritual leaders neglected their calling to the word and to prayer because 15 years ago, there ceased to be a church there. There's no longer a, a people there who, 
who gather to worship Jesus and proclaim his, his gospel. I'm not saying First United doesn't do good things. It does do good things, but it's no longer a church because the core responsibilities were neglected. If that had happened in the early church, when the foundations were being laid, the results would have been disastrous. And so the apostles know what they have to do. And, and I wonder if at this point they thought about Moses. See, when uh, I told you, when the Israelites were going through the wilderness, there was lots of grumbling and complaining. And Moses, as the, as the leader, kind of served as the judge as well. And so he would sit there all day and he would just have Israelites coming to him with their problems, with their issues, and he would settle them. And one day his, uh, his father-in-law, Jethro, came to visit him. And Jethro was gobsmacked, gobsmacked, I tell you. And what he saw, he looked at, he was like, Moses, this isn't sustainable. You're not going to be able to withstand this. You need to appoint men who are trustworthy, men who fear God, and, and they need to essentially be your circuit judges. You're the Supreme Court. You need these circuit judges. And if you do that, and if that's God's will, he told them, you'll be able to stand the strain and these people will go home satisfied. And that's essentially what the apostles do. They realize, no, we've, we've got to share the load. And so, so they, they put this proposal out. You guys, church, disciples, you, you, you choose, you call seven, seven men. And, uh, and, and so they do, and the apostles approve of them, lay their hands on them, commission them to do this work. But notice something about these men. And watch, well, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't notice this uh, reading the English language. So it's, it's fruitless for me to say that, but I'm going to tell you uh, what you can notice, which is that all of these names, all seven of these names are Greek names. They're not Aramaic, they're Greek names, which doesn't mean for sure, but probably most of them at least were Hellenistic Jews, which is significant for a couple of reasons. Remember, if, you're, if you've got this ministry and maybe the bulk of people that you're, you're reaching are Hellenistic Jewish widows, now you call Hellenistic Jewish men to care for them. See, there's some wisdom here in, in calling leaders who are able to represent and, and build the bridge with those that they're reaching out to. Uh, you see that in, in missions, global missions, where for a while the wisdom has been, if you, if you have a Westerner, let's say, who's planting a church in some other culture, you want to get the leadership of that church into the hands of people native to that culture as quickly as, you, as, as possible. That's how the church is going to grow. And it's the same thing domestically too. We just saw an example of it earlier in the service where, where Katie is able to reach out to, to teens who are you know, outside of faith and at risk. And she's able to reach out to them because she's closer to them in, in age. There's that natural kind of bridge. And so we call people like that. There's some wisdom there. I, I also think it's significant that the apostles are able to share leadership with those they might've perceived as outsiders. That these seven men would have been well, they were, they were Hellenistic Jews. They weren't part of the original, the OG movement. You know, they weren't, they weren't that. They were, they were new to this to some extent. And, and they were from a different cultural background. And yet the apostles are able to share. They're not, they're, they're not, they don't hold so tightly to this. You know, there are some churches, and I don't think our church is guilty of this, but there are some churches where it's like, well, unless you were like born here and raised here and got married here and got baptized here and have spent the last 40 years here, you can't be in leadership. It's just not going to work. You got to know us better. Maybe when you're 80 years old, then, that, then maybe. But not, I mean, that's not what they do, right? They're, they're, they're able to give and share leadership with those who are kind of new to this, who might be perceived as outsiders. That's great. 
But, but none of that is in the end the reason why they are chosen. It's not because of their cultural background or because they're fresh meat or anything like that. Why, why are they chosen? What's the qualification? The apostles tell the, the congregation, choose men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. Number one thing, full of the spirit and wisdom. See, um, again, a lot of churches call leaders based on how connected they are, how long they've been around, if they're just willing, if they're a warm body. Oh, really? You're willing to stand for that? All right, you're in. You got companies that will hire people nowadays basically just on the basis of how many boxes they can check off on the intersectionality scale, right? The diversity, inclusion, uh, equity kind of scale. That's how they hire. But in the church, we don't, we don't do that. It's, it, it all comes down to character, to the quality of your faith, to the degree to which you're being conformed to the image of Christ. That's the number one thing that matters. See, some people, they kind of like want to trumpet their, their resume, right? They want to go like, hey, look at all the things I've studied and look at all the things I've done and look at all these wonderful things people have said about me, put me in the greatest place of leadership. I'm amazing. I'll tell you, God can do abundantly more with a humble nobody whose heart is fully surrendered to him than he will do with the most gifted, qualified, competent person in the world who's all in it for themselves. That's just the way it is. So the apostles, they have this crisis in front of them and they empower a new group of leaders who are able to bridge the gap with the people they're serving, but most of all are full of the Spirit, walking closely with the Lord, full of, of wisdom. And, and that allows the apostles to continue to devote themselves to what God has called them to. And in the process, the crisis is averted. People go home and they're happy. They're, they're yeah, okay, this is good. We're encouraged. And it gets even better than that. Verse seven, last verse says, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So bottom line here is that something that could have destroyed the church, rent it asunder, if I'm in the 18th century, uh, ends up being used by God to grow the church, to spread the gospel. In fact, we read that a large number of priests came to faith. Now, uh, these priests, there were like 8,000 priests in Jerusalem at the time. Most of them were part-time lower down on the kind of the, 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 the social ladder, but they were still religious leaders who were expected to fall in line with the chief priests, their, their bosses, essentially. But instead, you know, the chief priests are harassing the church and these priests are lining up behind Jesus. This is what God can do. He can take the, the hard hearts and he can make them soft and he can take a situation that naturally and in every other circumstance would have led to destruction and he can use it for his glory. So what do we do with this? I want to suggest three implications for us as a church. The first is that if you're a follower of Jesus, and I, and I, I know not all of us are, and I'm so grateful if you're here and, and exploring this. And I, I just, you know, I, I say this now as more, here, here's, I hope that you will become a follower of Jesus and here's, here's what that would look like. Here's, here's what this would require. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a part of the body of Christ. And the Holy Spirit has given you gifts 
to build up the body. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit has been given for the common good. He has given you a gift. And the body of Christ is healthiest and strongest when all the parts of the body are doing the work that God has called them to do. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that you all need to find a ministry in the church where you can volunteer. I think that's great. But building up the body isn't just volunteering in church ministries. You build up the body as well by your interactions with those outside the church for the rest of the week. Because Sunday morning is not your spiritual time and the rest of your week is your secular time where you can do whatever you want. This is, if anything, your charging station as missionaries. You are, you are missionaries in the world. And this is a place where you come and you, you are given fresh perspective and you are charged up, you're strengthened so that you can go out into the week and make Jesus known, right? And this is what my job is and, and our other leaders is to equip you and empower you to do this. Paul says in Ephesians 4 that Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So my question to you is, do you know how God has gifted you and called you and wired you? Are you exploring those gifts? If you would like to, and you don't know, but you'd like to, I do have resources I would love to share with you, reflection questions and, and spiritual gift assessments and so on. But are you, are you living into that? Or are you, leaving, are you burying your gifts in the ground? Or are you unearthing them? Are you exploring them? Are you using them? Whether in the church community or, or in the wider community on the church's behalf to build up the body. Don't neglect this. Second implication is the importance of a soft and humble heart. I, I think that's what, that's the central thing that God uses to bring the church through this crisis into further growth is because the apostles don't, don't hold on to this, to this power. Like they've got to oversee everything. No, they don't, they don't get defensive and then try to, try to defend their own turf, their own reputation. They are, they are willing to share this, to empower others, to empower a new group of, of leaders. That to me speaks of humility. And also, by the way, uh, even the, the, the response of the church, so you got people who are grumbling, but then, but then they're encouraged, right? They're, 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 you know, they, 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 they're pleased by what's happening. They're, they're not stuck on their grumbling, on their complaints. But, but because of the apostles' response, their hearts, I think we see here that the, the heart of the church as a whole is soft and, and responsive and humble. And so they're able to move through this. So if you're, if you're someone like me who struggles with the superhero complex, lay that down. Lay that down. Be willing to, to share leadership, to share credit. You know, lay, lay down your, your need to defend your turf and your reputation. Everything goes better when our hearts belong to the Lord when they are soft and when we are in it for his glory instead of our own. And that leads me to the third and final implication, which is the importance of priorities. The church, the early church in Acts had no doubt about what they were supposed to give their time and attention to. Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. This is what they were about. And here with the leaders of the church, it gets even more focused. It's the ministry of the word and 
prayer. Like that's what we're gonna give ourselves to with all the good things that we could do. This, this is it. And that's gotta be true of us as well as a church. There are lots of good things we can be doing. In the end, this is what we're about, the gospel and prayer. And, and because we've just come through a week of 24-7 prayer, I wanna focus on this just a little bit here at the end. It was almost 24-7. It was, it was 24-5 and then it was like 22-2 is what it ended up being. We did pretty good, guys, but you guys are busy on the weekends. And we had some people valiantly trying to keep the thing alive. I'd be on there at like, 831. I'm like, who's going to sign up? And all of a sudden there comes a name, you know? And anyway, it was very exhilarating. It's an exhilarating ride, 24-7 prayer. Re leave that aside. Um, anyways, it, I was so encouraged though by the number of people. I think we had the most people we've ever had, like individually engaging with this, praying for our church, for our community. This is so crucial. And it starts with me. It starts with our leaders, that we are devoted to prayer. E.M. Bounds uh, said over a century ago, the most efficient agents in disseminating the knowledge of God, in prosecuting his work upon the earth. People just don't talk like this these days anymore. And in standing as breakwater against the billows of evil have been praying church leaders. God depends on them, employs them, and blesses them. And this has got to spread to the whole church, starting with the leaders. Leonard Ravenhill said half a century ago, this is an hour in need of burning hearts, bursting lips, and brimming eyes. Just this, this need for passionate, earnest prayer for the kingdom of God. He says, for this sin-hungry age, we need a prayer-hungry church. He says, poverty-stricken as the church is today in many things, she is most stricken here in the place of prayer. See, my friends, there is a world out there where people are numb and apathetic to the things of God. And there is a generation emerging right now that this is especially true of, this numbness, this apathy, social media and screens and the cynicism of this world have dulled the senses of a generation to the Lord. And we see it, we see it in our churches as well. We desperately need the work of the Holy Spirit. We desperately need to depend on the Lord in prayer if this is ever going to change, if this is ever going to be reversed, if that tide is going to turn. Listen, if our, starting with me, starting with our leaders, if our hearts are far from the Lord and if our priorities are skewed, then the crises that inevitably come, and they will come guaranteed, when they come, they will destroy us. But if our priorities are right and if our hearts are right, then those inevitable crises, God will take those. He will use them for his glory. He will cause them to actually lead to growth in the church and the spread of the gospel in the world. May it be, amen? So Jesus, we, um, there are so many things, there's so many forces and, and situations and events in the world that could so easily destroy us. And, and you, have, um, you, have, you have come alongside of us, Lord Jesus. You gave everything. You gave your life for us so that we could live in your presence, so that we could live with your spirit filling us, so that we could live as members of your body, striving together for your kingdom. And yet we neglect it oftentimes. We neglect 
your calling and we neglect the gifts you have given us and, 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 we, and we stray, Lord, and, 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 and we end up having wrong priorities and we give ourselves to all kinds of things that aren't what you have called us to do. And so we wanna pray forgive, for your forgiveness today, Lord. We wanna confess that. We wanna pray for your forgiveness and we, we just wanna eagerly receive your grace and your mercy. And, and, and Lord, I just, maybe for you today, uh, my brothers and sisters, maybe today is a day where you just say, I, uh, I'm turning from that. I'm turning from a life lived with the wrong priorities, neglecting the gifts God has given me, neglecting the calling, neglecting what he, is, what he has given me. And I am turning to a life that is, is oriented around him, oriented around his glory. I want to have a soft heart. Perhaps today is the day where you turn to him and say, Jesus, I'm yours. We pray for our whole church, Lord, that our leaders would lead the way in being immersed in your word and in prayer that this would characterize our whole church, Lord, that given all the other good things that we could do, Lord, that we, that we devote ourselves to prayer, to fellowship, to, to the word. And we pray, Lord, that through this, that you would cause there to be growth, that you would cause the gospel to go out from us as every part of the body does its part, Lord, that you would cause the gospel to go out, the good news of your mercy, of your salvation, and that many around us would be saved, that many around us would come into the kingdom of God because your body is functioning as it should. Lord, may that be among us. May that be in each one of us individually. In Jesus' name, amen.